Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your hose dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young. Streetlights push back the black, neat rows. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat. As straight through that stop sign, you'll roll. Loaded truck with lights off slams into you broadside. Your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your life. Fate had its own scheme. Crushed like a bug, you still die. Soon now, you'll join those ranks of the dead. Or ashes, yours, the wind, will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a tear. Pretend it's off to heaven you go. But the reality is, you were just bones and meat. And with your brain dead, your soul dead too. See the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly, quickly, say it's for the best. It's best for you so their fate you'll not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen. Soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Consume what you don't need, stars you idolize. Pursue what you admit is a dream, then it's American die. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on a clock and sit on your ass, playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Now that I have you held tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear, so you know that it's true. You're my love at first sight. I know you're scared to be near me. My words penetrate your thoughts, now in an intimate prelude. I looked into your eyes. They were so dark, warm, and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better the potential to fill up those pools with the air. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through the highlight of red, what color, I wonder, on how straight will it turn, plastered back with sweat of your blood? Your lips were a promise of a secret unspoken, nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand now on your shoulder, your eyes. Forget the lady called luck, she does not abide near me, her, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. I would keep you, let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings my hands snare. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down, begging to be my Stockholm sweetheart. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. 
Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower or your petals I'll crush. Are you Everybody. My name's Athena, and you're here for another episode of Vanished in the Valley. And that scary little piece of work I just read was the suicide note of serial killer Israel Keys. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I know I don't normally feature, you know, anything about serial killers. Uh, it's for a few reasons. As it is, there's a bunch of chicks out there that already do podcasts that are way better researchers than I am. And that's what they do every week, is talk about serial killers. Um, I just don't want to, like, glorify any further these assholes that go out there and rape and murder people. Any more so than they already are. Because they get a lot of press a lot of the times. Um, but Israel Keys is kind of a special exception for me. The first time I ever saw this guy, he just, like, seriously, like, chilled me to the bone. Like, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. He just, he almost has this, like, reptilian look in his eyes. So he's always kind of fascinated me, and I've talked about him a few times on the podcast. So I just thought I would do a little uh, special about Israel Keys this week. So a lot of my information comes from, uh, there's several documentaries out there. I have just finished the book called American Predator by Maureen Callahan. There was some information in there that I had not already heard on uh, all the other things I've talked about, like, you know, documentaries. There was a podcast that I listened to. It was a long-ass, like, multi-part podcast called True Crime Bullshit by Josh Hallmark. I believe I've talked about that in the past. Basically, what he does is plays, he kind of edits down all the FBI interview tapes that are out there. And just kind of comments on them and breaks them down. I also watched on YouTube, there's like, I think six or seven hours of the FBI interviews with Israel Keys. And I don't think I'm ever going to forget this motherfucker's laugh. It's just like cold and empty. So I don't know. I If I were you and like wanted to learn about Israel Keys, I would probably do the uh, true crime bullshit podcast. Just because you're like hearing about him and his words and it, I think, yeah, just kind of give me the best picture into Israel Keys. Um, but the American Predator book, that kind of like gives you a background like on where it all started for him. And we're going to get into all of that. So there's just so much to learn about this scary guy that I'm going to try to break it down. And the reason, another reason I'm profiling him is because he has a lot of victims that were never identified. So there is people out there that have missing loved ones that are actually victims of Israel Keys. So I'm also going to try to give a timeline of where he was at and at which time. Because he traveled all over the United States. And some people even think he has victims in Canada and as far away as Belize. 
So let's start all the way back at the beginning. Israel Keys was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978 to a large Mormon family. He was the second of 10 children born to Heidi Keys and John Jeffrey Keys. Israel and all of his siblings were homeschooled. And when Keys was between the ages of three and five years old, they all moved to Colville, Washington. And check this out, you guys. They lived in a tent for the first several years they lived in Washington. The whole point of living in the tent is because they had bought about 100 acres in the woods up in Washington. And his father was, I guess, hand-making a cabin for them to live in. And once the cabin got done, it's not like they were living in any type of luxury because they had no running water, no, like, normal toilets, as, you know, we would think of them, and no electricity. So this is like 12 people living in a one-room cabin in the damn woods. I mean... That right there would be enough to make a lot of people a little wonky. But his, uh, his parents were like super religious. They start off as Mormon, but then I guess kind of convert to like some kind of like a hardcore Christianity. His family attended the Ark, which was a church that was taught that basically they taught what's called Christian identity. And it's kind of known as a racist, anti-Semitic, and white supremacist interpretation of Christianity, which holds the view that only Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Nordic, and Aryan people, and those of kindred blood, are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hence the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Keyes does end up renouncing his Christian faith by his teenage years, and he becomes really interested in Satanism. He even at one point burns a pentagram into the back of his neck. Totally normal, I know. Like a lot of other serial killers, Israel did spend time in the military. He served in the U.S. Army from 1998 through 2001 at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and in Egypt. Keyes was honorably discharged, and his records indicate he was awarded the following military decorations, service medals, and awards. The Army Achievement Medal, Army Service Ribbon, Marksman Badge with Rifle Bar, Expert Infantry Badge, and Air Assault Badge. His former Army buddies kind of describe him as quiet, he sort of stuck to himself, they did say that he tended to drink a lot, and his favorite drink was wild turkey bourbon. Ew! Oh my god, that literally just made me want to vomit, even just saying the words wild turkey. They say his favorite group at the time was Insane Clown Posse, and that he had several large posters in his barracks. Which was weird, because everything that I had read about him, other than this little army excerpt, was that he was into heavy metal music. So I don't know, maybe he had a, a wide variety of taste in music, but I'm not exactly sure on that. All right, so let's get to some of his crimes and his victims. His first like assault on a person that he actually admits to the FBI. Now I say admits because he does make mention that in this incident in 1996 or 97 it was not the first time that he had sexually assaulted a person and in 1996 or 97 
he's around 17 or 18 years old. So I'm just like, how old were you when you started sexually assaulting people, you nasty ass motherfucker? But let me just, uh, I'm going to try to give you the story from his words on how he sexually assaulted this girl. Keyes says it was around 1996 or 1997. The Summerhood family had just moved to Oregon. So he would have been around 18 years old. There was a beach they all went to alongside the Deschutes River. I think that's how you say it. Deschutes, Deschutes. That's what gave me the idea, I guess. There were these, um, like, remote restrooms in these random little beach areas. And I took somebody on one of those. But I didn't, you know, I didn't kill her. And an FBI agent asked him how long he had planned to take someone before he actually got up the nerve to do it. For that one, he asks, or... And then he kind of gets cut off for that one. Yeah. So, he Keys kind of responds with, well, that one, I got down there in the spring, and I think it was late summer when I, when I did it. But I've been thinking about it for years before that. And the little, uh, the FBI agent interrupts again. So back then, did you develop some kind of a kit where you had rope and, oh yeah, Keys interrupts again. I had all that stuff with me. So Keyes describes the area. The beach was accessed through a gate that was locked at night. And he'd gotten there late one afternoon wearing only a swimsuit and hid in the trees watching. He was waiting for the inner tubers on the river to kind of thin out with, you know, the sun going away. And as dusk began to fall, this little group of teenagers came along and four or five went by and this one girl was kind of lagging behind her friends. And Key says he just jumped out of the bushes and grabbed her. Key said he had never seen this girl before and that she was a white girl around the ages between 14 to 18. And the FBI agents assumed that she was probably on the younger side of that. And he describes the girl as dirty blonde. And this is where the agents asked him if this was the first time he had ever sexually assaulted someone. And this is his response. No, but I mean, that was the first time I took it to that level. I had it all planned out. He ends up grabbing this girl, dragging her out of the river and up to a small bathroom. It was like one of those nasty pit toilets. There wasn't running water or anything. Uh, kind of like the ones you know when you go camping. They probably clean it like once a year. And there's like the big, uh, like I think like, maybe like a ceramic holding tank underneath it. And it's... It's the really smelly. I don't know if you guys have ever seen one, but they fucking reek. And I can't think of many worse places to be taken to, to be raped and killed. Because what his plan was, was to pick someone up, bring him into that bathroom, and he wanted a small person. Because he had planned on dumping them down the tank. And I think he thought, you know, that would be a good idea. Because since they rarely clean it, it would take about a year for that person to have been found. And, you know, the smaller the victim, the easier it is for Keys to control. So he forces the girl into the outhouse, a handicap-accessible shack with bars along the windows and walls, then roped her neck to one of the bars and tied her arms out so she couldn't move. And I had, like, the lid of the outhouse closed, and I had her tied over that on her stomach. 
He says the knots were tight enough to leave bruises. He raped her once, he said. And he says he didn't cut her or anything like that. He had all of his knives and stuff with him. He thinks he did choke her. And the FBI agents asked him, so what do you think stopped you from taking it to that level? And he replies, she just, um, I think maybe she had something like that happen to her. Or maybe she had thought about what she would do in this type of a situation. It seemed like she knew what to do and what to say and stuff. Like everybody else I always took seemed completely surprised. Like they didn't expect it. Like they had never even thought of a scenario like that. Like what they were in. Key says the girl kept talking. She told him he was a good looking guy who didn't need to be doing this. She would have gone out with someone like him. What he was doing right now wasn't that big of a deal, she said. He could let her go and she'd never tell anyone. Through the whole attack, she also hadn't shown much fear. And a status like Keys needed real fear. It startled him. I mean, she was scared. But in a lot of ways, I think she was more calm about it than I was. I kept telling her to shut up and she wouldn't. She wouldn't. So I guess I kind of changed my... I just lost my nerve at the end. And she managed to make me see her as a person. She even told me her name. It was Leah, I think Key said. Lena? Something L. But she didn't tell me her last name. I didn't ask. And after the rape, he says he untied her and let her go, putting her back on the inner tube and pushing her down the river. That was major, he said. That, to me at the time, was a big deal. A big deal. I don't remember if I was worried about DNA at the time, but I was convinced that there was like some big investigation trying to figure out who had done this. When in reality, 2020 hindsight, maybe she never even told anybody. See, there it is. Sexual assault not being reported. The moment Keys let her go, he regretted it. He says he checked the local papers constantly, like every single day, waiting for that story to appear. Or for the cops to come arrest him. But, he says, when the months passed and his name never came up, no phone calls, no door knock, no investigation, he didn't feel smart. He felt lucky. But, he was so mad at himself. For years after, he says, he kept telling himself, I should have killed her. Now, that's the first sexual assault that he admits to. But it's definitely not the first crime. So, apparently, as a child... He would burn stuff. <laughs> he had a, a little fixation with fire. And he also killed family pets. Like, as a child, he lost friends because I apparently one time he strung up a cat and killed it in front of one of his friends. And it affected his friend so much that this kid never spoke to him again. And apparently he would break into surrounding cabins and steal from them. He liked to steal guns. He kind of had an obsession with guns. So he he had this propensity of crime. He was, uh, I don't know, sort of fascinated with fire from a very young age. And he liked to hurt small animals. So it's almost like from the beginning, we have like all of the checklists for the serial killer in a making. I'm not sure about wetting the bed because I know that's on the little triad of serial killers. But everything else is just like totally pointing in the direction of this guy is going to end up hurting people in the future. So 
The next assault and murder I'm going to talk about is the one that actually brought Israel Keys to the attention of the authorities and people all across America. He took a girl by the name of Samantha Koenig from a little coffee kiosk in Anchorage, Alaska in 2012. Samantha was reported missing the morning of Thursday, February 2nd, 2012 by the next person that was showing up at this little coffee kiosk called Common Grounds. Now, when that other coworker of hers got in that day, she thought that it looked like someone had just walked off their shift. The kiosk had not been properly closed down, all the money was missing, and everything was just kind of out of place. When the Anchorage police got there and checked out the crime scene, it seemed more likely that she'd gone off on her own. The Anchorage police found no sign of a struggle, and inside the kiosk, there was a panic button, and Samantha had not hit it. She'd been using her cell phone the night before she'd gone missing because she was in a fight with her boyfriend, Dwayne. Um, and I'm going to point out a few different areas where the Anchorage PD and the FBI completely jacked up this investigation. I'm not sure if they just like totally decided that she had run off with this $200 to start a new life and kind of just said fuck it, but that's kind of like the impression I've got after reading, you know, this book and watching hours and hours of interviews and just uh, all the other investigations I've kind of looked into from the start of starting this whole podcast. I think they just fell into the oh, she's a runaway, let's just see what happens type thing. There was security footage from inside the kiosk that the investigators did watch, but they only watched like the first 15 minutes. If they had bothered to even just fast forward through the tape, they would have seen Israel Keys come back to that kiosk a few hours later that night. He had forgotten Samantha's phone there, and to enact his little sicko plan, he needed her phone. So if they had bothered to ask the Home Depot across the street for their security footage, they would have seen at one point Samantha made a break. She actually got away from Israel and started to run when he became distracted because randomly there was a brand new camera on the ground and he bent over to pick it up and she bolted. But unfortunately, Israel was able to get up, catch up to her and tackle her. And what's crazy is there was like 10 other people in the vicinity, but apparently not one person saw Israel chase her down and tackle her. So, I don't know. There was just so many things that just could have gone a little bit different and Samantha would still be alive today. Apparently at one point, as Israel's driving her around that night, which she did for three hours, a cop car drove up to them and was literally parked at a red light. And Samantha, she didn't alert them. She was probably fucking terrified because she's already been knocked around by this guy a few times. And he's given her the false hope that if she just cooperates, everything will be fine. And he's going to release her once he gets some ransom money. And this whole ransom plot was the reason he needed to go back and get Samantha's phone from the coffee kiosk. He needed the phone so he could text her boyfriend with a little proof of life picture, with his demands and further instructions on how they were gonna, I guess, hand off the money and how they were going to receive Samantha. 
But it was all a lie. He had never planned on releasing Samantha. He did plan on ransoming her, but he never planned on giving her back. What ended up happening that night is he took Samantha back to his house and he had this little shed outside. He ended up turning up some music really loud. And as they walked in there, Samantha noticed there was already a tarp on the ground. And Israel swears it wasn't to catch blood or anything like that. It was just to keep everything neat and in one pile. So he sits Samantha down and ties her up. He's got this rope around her neck that's been tied to the side of the shed. He gets her a glass of wine and they both kind of share it. He ends up raping and strangling her that night. That's not even the crazy part, guys. So this part is about to get really fucked up. So you got to put on your big boy, big girl pants. So he rapes her and he strangles her. After Samantha's dead, he wraps her body up in the tarp and sticks her in some shelves. Kind of like a little cupboard shelving unit. And he knows shit goes on a two-week cruise with his girlfriend and his daughter. A two-week cruise. Now, this is February in Alaska, so Samantha's body was frozen. So Keys was not worried about any smell or anything like that. And he had double locked the shed. So when Keys gets back from this two-week vacay with the girlfriend and kid, he decides he's got to defrost Samantha's body because he wants to make a proof-of-life picture and ransom note. So he goes and he gets a newspaper for February 13th, and he comes back and uh, defrosts her body with a blow dryer and a heater. He ends up having to get a shit ton of makeup, and he says he spent about the whole day putting makeup on her body to try to make her look alive. He states that she did not at all look alive. He also had to, I guess, take string, like strings and needle. He needle, like, sews it through her face to try to make her look alive because her face was really droopy, and he says you could tell she was not alive. He braided her hair. And you can actually see this picture on the internet. He's holding up a newspaper and he's holding up her head. And he actually took a Polaroid picture of it and Xeroxed a copy of it and sent instructions to the boyfriend. Basically, the instructions just said, go to this certain part and there's a note below a picture of this dog. A welcome sign once you enter the park. So, of course, the boyfriend and the dad at this point contact the police. They run down there and they retrieve this note. And the FBI from the start couldn't tell if Samantha was alive or dead. But, you know, they I guess they kind of have to assume or hope she's alive and obviously give the parents hope that she is alive. He's got... Oh, I didn't even tell you guys shit. I didn't even tell you, like, the most disgusting part about this. So when he came back and he defrosted her body, sometime between getting makeup and stringing her face up, he did rape her dead body a couple of times. So that's just like a whole nother level of fucking disgusting, sick weirdo. Like, I don't even know what to say about that. So let's just move on. In the ransom note that he had sent a boyfriend and dad, he had demanded $30,000. Which was weird because at that point, the dad had raised around $70,000 from the public and, you know, different donations. So the dad 
didn't put the $30,000 in like Israel had requested. He only deposited $5,000 at first. And right after the deposit, Israel starts making withdrawals. And at first it's just, you know, 200 here, 200 there. But then he figures that, you know, if he goes around midnight, he can take 500 out around, say, you know, 1155. And then once that clock hits midnight and her card resets, he can take out another 500. So within five, 10 minutes of time, he can get away with $1,000. But the problem for the police is there's a delay. You know, it's not like they're seeing this and they can get to that ATM in the next two seconds. And Israel is smart enough that he's not parking his car where the camera can pick him up. And he is wearing a mask and a hoodie, so it kind of disguises his characteristics. So at first, all of these ATM withdrawals are done in Alaska. But suddenly, out of nowhere, the FBI is notified that Israel is now in the lower 48. And at first, the ATM hits in Arizona. Then it hits in New Mexico. So they can kind of determine that he's moving east. They're not sure where he's headed to, but since they're the all-knowing FBI, they can determine that he is probably in a rental car. It's probably a Ford Focus. And they know the car is white just because they were able to pull some video from an ATM in Arizona. And check this out. They had contacted one of the branch managers for the bank that he had used the card at. And this lazy bitch refused to get up and go pull the security tapes for that particular ATM. I really wish they had released the name of that branch and the bank because trust me, I put her bitch ass on blast right now. But unfortunately, they didn't. So they figure this guy is about to hit Texas and lo and behold, the next ATM charge comes up and it's in Texas. So they put a bolo, be on the lookout, they put all of his information out there and that he's most likely traveling in a white Ford Focus. Well, the Texas Rangers get a hold of it and a whole bunch of different departments in Texas get a hold of it and they take this shit seriously. So they have everybody out there just searching for this guy. And guess what? They find his car one morning parked at a hotel. And we're going to leave off right here, right before we get into contact with Israel Keys, because we do have a special bonus episode coming up on Thursday, where I'm going to tell you the rest of the story of Israel Keys. Also going to give you a timeline of just telling you where he was at and the specific years. So if you know anyone that is missing, you think for whatever reason, Israel Keys may have come into contact with them. I will give you the FBI phone number and the agents who are in charge on this case and just call them. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not, but you might as well check. So check back Thursday and we'll wrap up the horrible story of Israel Keys. And never forget, like I always tell you, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao. Are you lost? Yes.